Well, is it ever too late? My fear is that for the New Zealand cricket team, it might be already. But seriously, we get to points in our lives where we just feel like it's hopeless. You ever been there? Where just I can't go forward. I, I feel like my situation, my, my, my stand in life is just utter hopelessness. I want to say hopelessness is one of the darkest of all human experiences. It's the realization that there's absolutely nothing to look forward to. No joy, nothing positive, no respite from pain, no comfort from sorrow, no hope, nothing. Even fear is better than hopelessness. At least with fear, when we're afraid of something, we're afraid because something could go wrong. Usually there's some sense of hope within it that maybe we we won't face what we're afraid of. But with hopelessness... There is no hope. The problem is, human hopelessness doesn't generally correspond to reality. We often feel hopeless, like there's nothing to look forward to, nothing to be excited about, because, well, we think that there is, but in reality, there are things to look forward to. The good and right work of psychologists and counsellors all across the globe is to help the hopeless, say that they've lost touch with reality. To say that there are some things that are good in their life, that they've become unrealistically negative. There are people who love them. They have strengths within them. There are joys ahead of them. There is a life to embrace. That's the good and right work of psychologists. Some of us here might, have be, might be in that situation. We might be feeling like life is hopeless We might be experiencing all sorts of frustrations at ourselves. And I think it's right to go and see someone like a psychologist or a counsellor. Go and get help from people to go, actually, there is hope in life. It's right to come to Jesus and as Christians say that he holds out great hope for us. The terrible experience of hopelessness is so often a case of blindness to reality. We don't see the world as it really is. We've got a clouded or a darkened view of what is going on. However, there's another kind of blindness that's just as equally untrue. And I want to say it's even more serious than that first kind of hopelessness. Possibly it's better described as short-sightedness where we kind of, we don't see the reality of what's going on. This short-sighted condition isn't accompanied by clear side effects like hopelessness often is. It has no sense of despair. Quite often, it's it's optimistically hopeful (laughs) because it too is based on an unrealistic view of reality. Psychologists and counsellors see very few people with this kind of short-sightedness because they so often look like healthy, well-balanced, got-it-all-together type people. The problem is only seen when we recognize this fact. Life is short. Death awaits every single person in this room. What is your solution to death? Do you have any hope? Are you in a short-sighted position where the world is rosy, but you have no idea what will happen next? In Ephesians 2, Paul describes the utter hopelessness of people with this short-sighted view. Everyone who is separated from Jesus, he says, is without hope. 
And he doesn't mean that in an unrealistic point of view. He means, really. Without Jesus, there is no hope. There is no God for you to run to. He's not just describing some conscious sense of hopelessness, but a real situation that faces you and me tonight. To be in a world where life is so precarious, where all it takes is to step out in front of a bus and life is over like that. Where life is so vulnerable and to have no God, no hope of what comes next, is most certainly to be hopeless. The situation that's in front of us tonight, as we see this last chapter in the book of 1 Samuel, is a man without hope. And we'll see why this is so important. Because what we see in the pages of this section is that, firstly, death comes to all mankind. Death is the great leveler. Death is the thing that really challenges us, challenges our confidence in our security, shows us how unrealistic and short-sighted we often are to think life is all dandy and happy when we have no solution to what's on the other side. Death comes to all mankind. Have a look at chapter 3 with me. By this time, Samuel had died. And all Israel mourned for him and buried him at Ramah, his city. A bit later, the Philistines came together and camped at Shinuam. So Saul gathered all Israel and they camped at Gilboa. The scene here is set and death is on the cards. Samuel, remember, was a prophet that we met very early on in the book of 1 Samuel. We had Hannah, who was this great woman in chapter 2, and she was longing for a child, and this child eventually came, and she dedicated him to God. And this child really spoke God's word to Israel. He was a prophet. He was the kind of uh, person who spoke what God had said to the people. Now, that's the role of a prophet, to speak God's word to people. And it's interesting to note that always throughout the Bible, that's how God leads his people, is by his word. And at this point in time, that word came through prophets, the prophet Samuel. And this last section, as 1 Samuel opens, we see the last chapter of this prophet Samuel's life. And in a moment's time, we're going to see the last chapter of the king Saul's life as well. And it shows us two things to remember, just little points that have huge ramifications. Number one, death comes to all mankind. I don't know... Anyone, really, who's lived past 120. I don't even really know anyone who's lived past 100 personally. Death comes to all mankind. Everybody dies. The faithful prophet of God, Samuel, still dies. The faithless king of Israel, Saul, is about to fall on a sword and eat dust himself. Death comes to all. That's the first thing that we see. The second thing is that facing death without God is terrifying. Facing death without God is terrifying. Have a look at verse 5. When Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid and trembled violently. The threat the whole way through the book of 1 Samuel has been this Philistine enemy wanting to kill Israel, to take them out. They've been trying to defend them the whole way through and now we see the battle come to a head 
And the man, King Saul, who Israel chose to be their king, the man who was head and shoulders taller than everyone else in all Israel, the man who'd been chosen by Israel because of his physical appearance and military prowess, is terribly afraid. The Philistines outnumbered and outgunned Israel in every way. But that wasn't what terrified Saul the most. You can picture him here at this, this battle, about to go on. They'd been in situations before where Israel were outnumbered, where, where they were drastically outnumbered. But again, that wasn't what terrified Saul the most. What terrified Saul was this. The piercing silence of God. Verse 6. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. So the real hero of Israel's military conquests had been God. He was the one that time and time again saved Israel from their enemies, even when the, the chips were down and it looked like they couldn't possibly win, even when Israel weren't involved at all. God would use this little shepherd boy called David to take out the Philistines' Goliath Hulk. And he did. Who was the victor? God won through this shepherd boy. When Israel were worried about God being taken off because the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant into their own land and the what happened? The Philistines got cursed by God. They, they had all these sicknesses. And in the end, their God was made to fall to his knees, not by any other kind of um, interaction with Israel, but merely because of God. God was the great warrior throughout all this time. And the thing is, Saul knows that. What terrifies Saul at this point is facing his foe on his own two feet without the creator of the universe. There's no one else to help him. Without God's prophet, Samuel's dead. And without God, facing his foe without God, scared the pants of Israel's tallest man. All the ways that God had previously spoken throughout time. God's not speaking anymore. Whether that be through dreams or through the Urim, which was kind of the Urim and Thurim were kind of like this way that you could kind of flip the dice. And God would then, um, by his providence, say, yes, go this way or that way. That's kind of what the, the priest did in, in that way. Or by the prophets, the ones who are kind of God's mouthpiece. All the ways that you could kind of hear from God were silent. Saul's short-sightedness meant he had shut God out from his life and the life of Israel. If you think back, he actually started well at the beginning. He wanted to do things that were right. He, at some point, the narrator tells us that Saul had followed through with Moses' command to expel all the mediums and the spiritualists, the kind of clairvoyance from amongst Israel. And he'd done it. He'd carried through with Moses' command in Leviticus at some point, Saul had taken God's word seriously, that God had spoke through the prophets Samuel and God, and, and Saul had listened and done those things. But bit by bit throughout Saul's life, we see him systematically reject God and his word. Why? 
Maybe he felt he didn't need God. After all, he was the king the people chose. He was head and shoulders above every other man in Israel. So at some point, Saul started picking and choosing which parts of God's word he'd listened to. He would, at the beginning, take out, or do what God had said, but not wait until the appointed time that God had said it. He started choosing from the bits that God had said it, and which bits he liked and which bits he didn't. And finally, he got himself to the point where he didn't obey any of it. He didn't care for God. He had no need for God. And so he deliberately silenced him, rejected Samuel's words. In the last kind of section that we looked at, he wipes out all of Israel's priests because they're not on his side. They're with David. He's kind of this one who is going to take the throne from him. 85 of them, he kills them. There's only one priest left in all of Israel and he's with David and they're camping out in Philistine territory. Saul silenced God at every avenue. He's gagged God. And it makes me wonder, have you been there? Have you been at that place in your life where you don't want to hear God speak? Where you just want to shut his word for a while and, and, and turn off from it? Are you at the place now where you know that there are areas of, of what God has said and, and who he is that you really just don't want to have an impact on your life? And so you just kind of turn the volume down on that bit. You're still like, oh yeah, I think God's great. I'm, I'm not against God, but I just don't really want to listen too much to him right now. Is that where you're at? I mean, in some sense, it is quite an attractive position to be in, isn't it? To remove God and His Word from the equation means that we can do whatever we want. We can say what we want, we can think what we want, we can sleep with who we want, we can drink what we want, we can buy whatever we like and live for whoever we like. We don't need to apologize to anyone ever. We just live because we can live. There's no one above us. It's, it's attractive. I don't know, I'm attracted to it. It's that to be free from every other kind of burden and to do whatever I want any old time. That's what I kind of want to sing as I'm driving along. It's attractive. Maybe you're not that far down the road just yet. Maybe it's just some parts that you're turning back on God. But the thing for us to note is that's exactly where Saul started. Where he picked and chose parts of God's word. He even did what was right for a moment at the beginning. What started so well ended up so badly. I wonder again, are your best days as a Christian in front of you or behind you? Do you look back to your glory days and go, man, that were the days when I was really excited about following Jesus. When I first became a Christian, when I first experienced who he was, that was when I felt close to God. That was when I was on fire for God. I wanted to like... I want to know him more. I want to tell everyone about him. My best days as a Christian, well, they're kind of gone. I'm kind of a bit tired now. It's been a while. I've been running a bit. I just want to kind of sit back. You know, I'm getting to final years of uni or early early years of work. I've been at work for a few years and I just, let's just, you know, I've had my time of being full on for the gospel. And that was great. And I'm glad I had them. But now I just need to kind of move on. Are your best days as a Christian behind you or in front of you? See, our best days as Christians should always be in front of us. No matter if you're 9, 19, 39, 59 or 99. Why? Because God promises that He's making us more and more like His Son every day. That He's changing us to be 
in God's likeness, that He's growing us to know God more deeply and to serve God more purely day by day. Our best days as Christians are in front of us, friends. Don't resign yourself to the fact that I've had my run, I've had my stint. Be excited about the opportunities we have of God transforming us from one degree of glory to another. He doesn't want us to serve well for the first 10 years of our life and then grab a backbench, watch the world go past, kind of retire. You can't retire from Christianity. Well, and not, you can't retire and stay a Christian at least. Our best days as Christians must be before us, not behind us. Well, now confronted by the outcome of his own choices, Saul is terrified. He's freaked out at the prospect of facing his enemies on his own because he's silenced God. He's ignored him. And the question for us is, is it too late for Saul? Is he in a a position of utter hopelessness? I'll tell you what he is. He's full of desperation. He is desperate. He's desperate to hear God speak, to know what to do, what's next, to have God's judgment pass and the protection over his enemies that he's about to fight. You can kind of hear the desperation in his voice. Look at verse 7. And Saul said to his servants, God's silent, he hasn't spoken. Find me a woman who is a medium, a clairvoyant, so I can go and consult her. I mean, These are the ones in his better moments he booted out of Israel. He said, get out, you shouldn't be here. When he actually listened to God's word, but now he he wants to hear anywhere. His desperation is like, just give me someone. What do I do? How do I face this foe? His servants replied, there is a woman at Endor who is a medium. So Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes and set out with two of his men. You can kind of imagine it. The man who was head and shoulders above all other Israelites, disguising himself and setting out to go to Endor. Now, Endor was kind of around the mountain, past this town where the Philistines were camped, about to kind of wipe Israel out and attack them, and then further on towards the north. So Saul, at this point, is so desperate that he's willing to go into the Philistine-occupied territory to get past them, round the back, at night, dressed kind of disguised, so he can just find out what to do next. Like, he... He's freaking out. They came to the woman at night and Saul said, consult a spirit for me. Bring up for me the one I tell you. But the woman said to him, you surely know what Saul has done, how he killed the mediums and the spiritists in the land. Why are you setting a trap for me to be killed? Then Saul swore to her by the Lord. As surely as the Lord lives, nothing bad will happen to you because of this. So now he uses God's name. Now he wants to say, oh, I can swear by the Lord. The Lord who has, he's removed from, he's silenced. Now he wants to use this so he can just get what he wants because he is freaked out. Who is it that you want me to bring up for you? The woman asked. Bring up Samuel for me, he answered. Now, there are all sorts of questions in my mind as I get to this part of the Bible. Like, what is going on here? <laughs> like, this is some pretty freaky stuff. He goes to a, a clairvoyant, a witch, kind of this, this spiritualist woman and says, bring up Samuel. Samuel's dead. Can you actually do that? Is that kind of legit? Now, we're not even told how this happens 
or, or what goes on in order for it to happen. Um, we're not told why it's even possible. They're not really the questions of the passage, and there's kind of a helpful point for us. We've got to come to the Bible and see the questions the Bible raises. Not just bring our questions, we do want to bring our questions, but we mustn't go, oh, if this doesn't tell me how they did it with the kind of literal words, then I'm not going to believe it. We've got to say, no, what are they trying to show us? What are the narrators who have kind of recorded this history trying to show us about God and about um, His people and how He's acted? And the questions of how this happened, whatever it is, and if it's possible, aren't even raised. All that we see is that there is some freaky stuff going on right here. I don't know, come to church, did you expect to hear about some guy bringing someone back from the dead? A mate of mine uh, that I went through Bible college with, before he was a Christian, he's kind of, he's just a funny guy. His name's Shane, kind of Aussie name. He's a removalist, right? Um, he's kind of Shane-o, and he's kind of this built guy. He's pretty short, but a bit stocky. And um, he was kind of just, he'd just go around doing removalist jobs. He was kind of like a, a bloke's bloke. And um, he kind of decided that he wasn't getting enough money um, doing removalist jobs, and he wanted to try and get something on the side. So he decided, and I kid you not, he decided to become a clairvoyant. He's like, I got, I got an idea. These clairvoyants, they're a joke. All they do is they sit there and they kind of throw around cards. They drink tea and they're like, oh, look at my leaves. <laughs> and then they kind of make up junk and kind of people pay them for it. So he's like, I'll oh, give this a crack. You know, why not? Make some money on the side. Let's just give this thing a go. So um, again, before, before he was a Christian, he's like, all right. So he puts an ad in the paper and starts advertising and he kind of gets this regular client. And he said to me, he's like, Rowan, I just made it all up. I had no idea what I was doing. I just kind of, people came in, I kind of said some stuff and, you know, said this has happened. They'd go out and be like, oh, thank you. It's like, it was brilliant. It's got money. It's, anyway, so he said it was great until this one time. He goes, I was sitting there um, just making stuff up as normal and this couple kind of came along and uh, um, two, it was, it was a, um, two women, two sisters. And, he, and they wanted um, him to kind of contact their dead mother. And he's like, yeah, no worries. You know, he shakes the bag, put your money in. And he kind of went through his normal kind of ritual thing. He goes, oh, I'm getting a picture in my mind, a picture in my mind of, of a woman lying in a grave. And in, in her right hand, I'm seeing in this picture, this, she's got this necklace in her right hand. And he kind of, at this point, is in his normal, he's kind of like, he's a funny guy, right? He's like, yeah, I was kind of had him along. He, he said, I looked up and they'd gone white, like ghosts. And he goes, what, what, what? And like, well, we, we um, this necklace was like a family heirloom. And our mother had asked us to bury it in her left hand, but there was another family tradition that said she should have it in her right hand. I don't know what's going on here, but okay. He's like, all right. And they're like, but we disobeyed our mum and we buried it in her, in her right hand and not her left. And we're worried that she's angry at us. And he's like, he said to me, brother, I had to go change my undies. He's like, I, I, well, he's like this is some crazy stuff going on. And he said, there were other instances where stuff happened. He's like, how did I know that? Like, I'm just, how did I, that was the question they were coming to ask. And this vision came into my head. I'm just like crapping on, just making stuff up. But it's the truth. It freaked him out. It pushed him away. He stopped doing clairvoyancy stuff. He's like, I'm getting away from this. And he became a JW. And <laughs> the long story with him is after he was a JW, he wasn't convinced that, uh, that um, he couldn't give his son or children a uh, blood transfusion, looked at the Bible and was actually convinced that there is truth in the Bible and ended up becoming a Christian. Uh, and then was it with me at Bible college. Funny stories, I tell you. But people, I hear people say, 
horoscopes, clairvoyance. Actually, sometimes this stuff works. Sometimes they say things that actually, how can they know that? Like, it's, it's pretty good, right? And actually, it's, it's impressive. But here's the thing. Of course it works. It's demonic. Satan is able to do stuff. There is a spiritual realm going on. Of course he can kind of tempt people. What a great way to tempt people. Oh, you want to know the future? Come and find out one of my people and I'll just kind of shoot something that's true into their minds and suddenly you won't need God. You'll be freaked out that these guys can know stuff and you'll run because they can kind of give you, this is what's best for your business or your career or for, for your marriage. This is the person to marry. Look out this month for the person who'll come into your life and you're like, oh, I'm looking for someone. How do they know? You're like, how, how did this happen? Satan uses this stuff. Praying to Jesus for the right person to marry to pop in your life and at the same time looking in the horoscopes in the paper is like trying to serve God and Satan at the same time. In fact, it's more than that. It's trying to have God and Satan serve you at the same time. And the two don't mix. So in verse 15 we hear the words of Samuel. Yeah, it happens. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Samuel asks Saul. I'm in serious trouble, replied Saul. And you bet he was. But not for what he thought. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore, either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called on you to to tell me, what should I do? And then you hear Samuel's reply. Since the Lord has turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. You did not obey the Lord and carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you this day. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Now, none of this is new information. He's already said it. Samuel's already said it when he was alive. But now Saul kind of wants to know more, wants to know more. And so somehow Samuel is raised, whether it's a vision, whether it's really there. And he just says the same thing, except for this last little fact. He gets this little bit of information at the very end. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. And the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. Not really the answer Saul was after. Doesn't stop his terror. 24 hours and you and your boys are dead. It's all you got. It's over. What would you do if you knew you had 24 hours to live? Will that change your sense of short-sightedness in the world? Of what mattered? Of what was important? Will that change the importance for you of eternity? Will that change the priority of things in your life for you to think through what matters most? where your hope lies, where your security is, what would you do if you had 24 hours to live? Would you run to God? I hear so many people say, oh, I just want to have fun now. I just want to live my way now. But on my deathbed, when, when I kind of get older, that's my time for religion. Now is the time for fun. Then will be the time for God. 
Well, is that what will happen to Saul? He falls flat on his face, terrified. The medium, this clairvoyant, this spiritualist, she offers him food, sustenance. When he should have been living off the word of God, he's now living off the food of a clairvoyant. Initially, he refuses, but in the end, he listens to her. It's funny. (laughs) He wouldn't listen to God, but he listens to this woman. And so she goes off and prepares a, a calf. She cuts up this cow and they have this feast, this big kind of barbecue to feed him up. And it reminds me of the words of, of Saul, of, of Paul, sorry, in 1 Corinthians. He says, if there is no hope, if there is no resurrection, if your life is in this hopeless situation, then eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow you'll surely die. Is that not the exact situation Saul is in? Without hope. But Saul has a window. He has 24 hours. What does he do with it? I'll tell you what he does. Nothing. Don't think you'll turn on your deathbed. You're just as stubborn then as we are now. Saul doesn't do a thing. Having the kingdom back, making him continue as king, that wasn't an option. It's already given to David now. But having his soul back was. He could have repented and come back to God and and apologized. The only thing that stopped Saul from saving his soul that day was his hardness of heart. Was him saying, nah. In 24 hours time, because of his hardness of heart... He would actually take his own life because he was fearing that the Philistines would take him over and they would have killed him. So he falls on his sword in just 24 hours time. Him and his son, Jonathan, David's best mate, his friend, both die because of Saul's reluctance to listen to God. Because of his hardness of heart, the Philistines would find the dead Saul and Jonathan and they would cut off their heads like trophies. They dragged their bodies back to the temple and would pin them. They pinned them to the wall of the Philistine temple. You wanted a king, Israel? There is your king. Pinned to a wall, cursed, mocked at. The man who was head and shoulders above all the other Israelites. At this point, as we look at the story of Saul and his great failure, the story of Israel looking for a leader, how do we make sense of it? I think there are some great similarities we see between Saul and Jesus. Like Saul, Jesus too was pinned to his enemy's wall, a cross. He was held up and cursed for all. (laughs) That is your king. What a joke. But unlike Saul... Saul was on the wall for his own foolishness, for his rejection of of listening to God. But Jesus was pinned to that cross because he obeyed God. It was Saul's foolishness that saw him pinned to that wall. It was yours and mine that saw Jesus pinned to that cross. Jesus died so that we don't have to face that foe called death. On that cross, Jesus called out those words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was a moment on that cross where Jesus was forsaken by God. He's facing hell on our behalf. God is silent towards him for the first time in eternity. There is a break between God the Father and God the Son. Why? Because of you and me. Because he is facing what we deserve for turning our backs on God. He is facing that terrible foe called death, which is a result of our sin. Jesus died on that day to take the hell that we deserved for rejecting God and his word. The story of Saul and 1 Samuel is meant to make us reflect. Reflect firstly on the futility of human power. Israel had said at the beginning in chapter 8 verse 19, there shall be a king over us that we might be like the other nations, so proud. And that king judge us and, and go out before us and fight our battles. Well, Israel, behold your king, dead, because of his own foolishness, because he did exactly what God said he would do, not serve God, but make everyone else serve him. The foolishness of the demand to put a king over Israel is like the foolishness of all hope that we place in human leadership. Whether that's political leaders, leaders of our councils, leaders of our government, leaders of our churches. Human leadership fails. Without God, death is victor. That's the story we keep seeing throughout the Bible. We die. We see in 1 Samuel the futility of human power. Don't think for one second that because we've got a big leader or a strong leader or because we're strong or we have skills in any way that we will conquer death. That's short-sighted. That's unrealistic view of reality. But the second thing that we see is the tragedy of death. It didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. And it doesn't have to be that way for you and I. Death, judgment and hell are what rightly faces us because we've turned our back on God, but we need not face them. Saul could have listened to God and trusted him. I want to read to you the words of a man who is kind of imagining what it would be like waking up from death and finding yourself in hell. Facing that foe called death like Saul was terrified of. What would that be like? Let me read it to you. He had never felt such aloneness before. Where's my wife? He choked. Only that awful echo. Your wife is not here. He tried to piece it all together, but the darkness was too thick. Once in a while, he thought he could see a blurred person or hear an anguished moan. He remembered the pain, those last moments of terror, but it was nothing compared to the feelings that were creeping into his awareness now. Again, he cried, where is my wife? Your wife is not here. Where, where are my children? 
your children are not here. He started to grope about in the darkness, but all was blindness. My God, he cried. He hadn't said those words in such a long time. Now they seemed hollow. Terror was welling up inside him. He, he felt like a small child being threatened by deep darkness. No, no candles anywhere, no love anywhere, no voice anywhere. Where is my wife? He screamed. Your wife is not here. Where are my children? He pleaded. Your children are not here either. Then the greatest fear of all came to his mind. He was terrified to ask, but he knew he'd have to. His whole body trembled as he pursed his lips and whirled into the nebulous night. Where is God? As the deepest of all darkness closed in on his soul for all eternity, he heard that hideous echo whispering that most horrifying of all judgments. God is not here. The story of one Samuel is here to put before us the hope that exists amongst what would otherwise be hopelessness. God would choose David and through David's great-great-grandson Jesus, a new king, a different king, a king who listened to the word of God, whose end was not death, but who conquered death, who rose again from the dead. He faced hell, so you and I don't have to. The greatest tragedy of, of 1 Samuel would be to respond to God and his work like Saul. Short-sighted blindness. I'm fine. I don't need God. God's a joke. God's an optional extra that we can have. That, that thing that he's done, that's far off. Death is for later. Jesus faced hell for you. He took the penalty you deserve for turning your back on God for you. That's the claim of history. And then he died for you and rose again to show that he had beaten death. The greatest tragedy of this year would be to hear the warning that God holds out for us in 1 Samuel and walk away and do nothing. Today, you and I don't know when we will come before God. The claim of Scripture is that we will. It could be tonight. It could be in 30, 50 years' time. But every single person in this room right now has an opportunity to respond to the hope that is held out in our hopelessness. Right now, tonight, you have a chance that if you haven't put Jesus first, if you haven't said to him, I want you to be my king and my Lord and my savior, to do that tonight. Because tomorrow could be too late. Don't be short-sighted. Make today the day where you come to God, you accept the forgiveness Jesus offered, and you run listening to his word, all of it, 
and live your life telling those around us of this great hope that we have. And I can guarantee you, you will not regret one moment. For what you have been offered is hope that is certain and secure. Maybe tonight you need to do some business with God. Maybe tonight's the night that you want to say, I'm in. I'm going to stop pretending. I'm going to run to Jesus, God's true King, the leader that I need. Why don't we pray together that God would help us do that? Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you so much for the love that you've shown to us, even though we so often have turned our backs on you. We so often ignore you and think that we know better. We think that our view of the world is far better than the one who made it. We reject your offer of salvation and we reject your son, whether that be in parts or in all of our life. And Lord, we want to say we are sorry. Sorry for the way that we don't take you at your word. Sorry for our self-centeredness and our focus on ourselves where we think the world is about us, not about you. Father, we want to thank you for Jesus. We want to thank you that on that cross, where he was scorned and mocked, but even more than that, experienced hell for us, that we can have hope. That his death was for us in our place. Father, we ask that that truth would captivate us tonight. That by your spirit and through your word, you would make that so true to us that we might see the hope that we have in the utter hopelessness of the death that faces us. Father, we ask tonight that you would make Jesus the king and ruler of our life, whether that be for the first time or in the little decisions where we're tempted to turn away from you. We pray this very night that we would run to you, that we put our life in Jesus' hands and we would experience the hope that comes from his death and resurrection. Lord, we pray, forgive us and save us. Amen.